One of my uh, favorite professors at seminary um, said that the best stories in the Bible are really intended as provocations. The things that would provoke us, the things that would provoke the imagination and cause deeper reflection. So here's one of those great stories in the book of Exodus about Moses and just probably from a contextual perspective, it's good to know that Moses has just murdered somebody. I mean, just just because, you know, these biblical characters are special Um, and he's uh, he's now isolated. He's he's now on the move and um, and we worship a God who can use anybody uh, for good. So listen up. Moses then led his flock beyond the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. And then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight. And see why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because Moses was afraid. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land a land that flows with milk and honey. And Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is a great line. Moses says, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. 
And God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I am who I am. And this is my title for all generations. May God bless the reading and the hearing of these words. There are a thousand sermons in that text, and they're all equally good. Um, It's a very powerful text um, and very foundational to faith. But listen, one of the great blessings in my life is that one of my dearest friends lives in Venice, Italy. We met on the first day of ninth grade, and through all the twists and turns and geographies of our lives, we still remain very close. She's a great blessing, no doubt, but I'm not going to lie, visiting her in Italy every few years is an added bonus to this friendship. Suffice it to say, I've been to Italy many times. It never gets old. And the art is one of my favorite parts. And it's great because when you see the art in person, you can see so much more than when you just look at an image. But many of these great images of Italian art, whether it's in Venice, Florence, or Rome, are kind of part of our consciousness. And one of the ones that really is, I I think, part of the collective consciousness, whether you're a person who likes art, whether you're a person of faith or not, is the painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, You know what what I'm talking about. It's God creating Adam. And it's this very fit, muscular, elderly figure with flowing gray locks and a flowing beard who looks like he's been to the gym, um, giving life to Adam, who, as an aside, also is depicted as being remarkably fit without clearly ever having set foot in a gym, gym or realistically ever been alive. But that's how they look. And God appears very human, very powerful. And his image is some kind of cross between a very fit Santa Claus and Zeus. So, (laughs) and you you, you can't unsee it. It it just, it's there and it's beautiful. And whether you are someone who likes art or likes religious things or likes spirituality or likes um, the Vatican or not, you can't unsee that image. We all know it. And somehow, because that image is the subtext for how we see God, and it's imprinted on our collective psyche, it's kind of changed our definition of God, who by definition is, uh, is limitless, is not bound to a figure or an image. But still, even I, despite all of my shortcomings, sometimes when I hear someone say God, that image comes to mind, and I have to purposely unsee it. Because God cannot be reduced to a a human image. We forget that God is in fact not human and that God is constantly being revealed to us in ways that we can't even imagine and in moments that are beyond imagining. God's revelation to Moses in a burning bush that we just read about is one of the most famous revelations of God in scripture. As Carter said, Moses is alone in a wilderness-like setting, 
and is most likely a little shaken up because he just killed somebody. And he encounters this burning bush, and he notices it in a very, it says, mindful way. He's curious. Why isn't this bush being consumed? It's very cryptic. cryptic. And the bush responds, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. There is some disagreement as to whether the Hebrew is in the current or the future tense. But um, the bottom line is that the ver- it's all about the verb to be, this bush that is burning, is saying, I am the verb to be in some conjugation. And being is revealed as the essence of divinity. It's cryptic and sometimes a little unfathomable, like, because being is really everything. And in many ways, that is the message. God tells us in this very foundational encounter that God is all that is, and God is all that is happening in every moment. In commenting on this text, Catholic Bishop Robert Barron said, in essence, God tells Moses, I can't be defined, described, or limited. I am not a being. I am the sheer act of being itself. Likewise, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel suggests that God enters the world and is revealed in this way in a common shrub on top of a mountain to a man in a wilderness because it was really devoid of God's presence. Moses probably couldn't have been farther in his spirit from God, um, either spiritually or physically on this mountain. And this burning bush says, there is no place and no way that God cannot reach us. Isn't that beautiful? So when you get to preach on this text, it's a total gift. And I can remind you of all the burning bushes in your life, most of them mysteriously wonderful, sometimes not wonderful, that this eternal beingness of God is revealed to you. These burning bush moments for you. Some of them involve other human beings, some involve seeing the blue moon. Who saw that? Yeah. Um, some are in forests, waterfalls, trees, and birds. Some are memorable meals. Some are just wonderful moments with a friend. Some might be a sermon that touched you deeply, so deeply you know you'll never be the same. It might be a kind gesture from a stranger. It might be a person who always comes through for you. But in some small way, we've all had these burning bush moments. And that's that's really the sermon. I can end it there. Peter, are you ready for music? (laughs) Um, If you get nothing, you get that. But this is really, in many ways, a lot deeper than just these revelations in burning bushes in our lives that are wonderful and we've all had them. When something seems too easy to understand and too good to be true, it probably is. And this amazing story is more about these God moments. It's about that these God moments happen and that God is looking to find us and keep us part of his story. No matter how removed from the world or how isolated we think we might be.
It's the possibility that in this, these moments of total isolation and despair, that there is a possibility that God is being revealed to us. And in that possibility is the essence of hope. Moses stands before the burning bush, a murderer, a person who has been absent from himself and the cause of his people and those who raised him. In this revelation, God interrupts Moses and he interrupts, in essence, all of history. Um, And here, Moses was kind of called to lead the Israelites out of slavery in this revelation. Hope was born for Moses and for all the people that followed him at the very edge of an abyss of despair. Hope is the idea that God will continue to reach out for us. Here is the idea of a God who will journey with us and help us make our own pilgrimages, whether in the wilderness or elsewhere. It's a God who reaches for us, who desires kinship and faithfulness, not only in one moment, but in all of being, in all of time. And Moses' revelation is deeper than that. It reveals that God is not static. God does not act once and then walks away. God's eternal. This being is before. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is the God saying, I will be what I will be. If God is looking for us then, we have to allow ourselves to be found exactly as we are. We sometimes resist being found. And here's where we take a lesson from Moses and all of those who are found by God throughout scripture. They all say it very simply, here I am. Today, God says Moses, and he goes, here I am. God is a personal God who finds us just as we are, here I am, that will co-create the world with us. God requires human collaboration. Not all of us are Moses, but we all have Moses-like qualities. God is ever-changing, and so are we. Rabbi Rabbi Rami Shapiro said that each of us is an active participant in the I Am. He suggests that as a wave on the ocean is a keeper of the ocean in its particular place and time, we are keepers and waves of God in our particular place and time. To realize that we have this capability and that everyone else does too greatly expands how we can see the world. And I love that metaphor, the oceans and the waves. Just as each wave is unique and distinct, just as the ocean is unique and distinct, so too is where we are in this universe that we keep waving in and out of. We keep happening, we keep becoming, into this divine reality. I often think of a colleague of mine from work. We get a lot of social work interns who come and work with us at Silver Hill for their year of field work. And I had one who was a middle-aged gentleman. A lot of them were younger people in their 20s. And he was working really hard, and he was lovely. And he was reading in something I printed off the printer, because we all share a printer. And the things I print are things like memes of burning bushes. And um, so not everyone's always interested in what I print on the printer. And Raphael had this. And I was like, oh, do you like it? And 
He's like, yeah, I do. He's, I said, tell me more about what, what you, saw, you saw in it. And he goes, well, I don't tell everyone here, but I'm a Jesuit priest. I'm like, wow. He's like, yeah, I try and keep it really separate. You know, my Jesuit superiors have blessed my social work degree and my social work internship as part of my bigger call, but I don't want to be the priest here. So he was very, you know, plainly clothed. And I've always had a, an affinity for the Jesuits. I've done a lot of Jesuit spiritual formation myself. Um, and we talked about that. I was like, oh, you're from the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where, where you ordained at St. Ignatius Loyola. That's like a beautiful, amazing Jesuit church in the Upper East Side. And he goes, actually, he said, and you're going to kind of laugh about this. And I didn't laugh. I was ordained at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I was like, oh. And he goes, yeah. My superior asked me about my ordination and where I wanted my ordination to take place. And he said, I wanted to be ordained in the chapel of Memorial Sloan Kettering because that is where I constantly saw God. He was a chaplain there and that's where he did his formation. And I was just, I was speechless. And um, if that's not a revelation of where God lives and works, I don't know what is. Last week in Carter's wonderful sermon about hope, he reminded me of some important things of why he unapologetically chooses to be Christian and why the Christian path points us towards hope. To paraphrase Carter, the person of Jesus who embodied divinity gave the world infinitely more color to see God. Carter affirmed that the person of Jesus reminds us over and over again that God is not abstract, out of reach, or incomprehensible. I agree. And I want to add my own unapologetic affirmation to Carter's. I love this cosmic mystery of a burning bush appearing to a scared man, discerning his call in the middle of the wilderness, reminding him that God's hope can appear in the most unlikely of places, and that it cannot be contained. God is being and becoming all in one. Yet I also love that through Jesus, I have a relatable way to know God. He's not only this benevolent force, but a benevolent human face. And from Moses to Jesus, we get these keyholes, these ways to peer into this eternal story of becoming, and a guidebook to see what life is like as a community of faith, who says at the core, as people and a community, that God will never be separated from us, and that we will never be separated from God. We'll continue to reach into the world and co-create, despite our many failings and many falls. We are people of hope because we are in constant creation with God and helping God in his work in the world. And God is always reaching us and helping us pull, help pull us to our own constant creation. As we start a new school year, all of us, but especially some of us, and as we, our calendar turns towards the fall, Think about the new ways that God's being revealed to you. What's the new possibility, the new growth, the mysterious thing that's burning in front of you that you don't know what it is? 
What is possible that you never thought possible? What could you be becoming? What could our community be becoming if we could open ourselves to see all the places God is pulling us? And here's where Michelangelo comes back in. I last visited Italy in 2019. The pandemic and other things have ruined this ritual of visiting. I was on the streets adjacent to the Vatican and browsing through this fascinating, fascinating combination of liturgical supplies for priests and souvenirs that I stumbled upon. And I found a postcard of this Sistine Chapel scene, but it was a zoomed in picture of the fingers. And I never realized that the fingers weren't touching because when you see it from afar, it just looks like they're touching. No, there is purposely plenty of room between the two hands, and they're kind of going like this. So even if you say, oh, they're eventually going to meet, you know, I was like trying to do the geometry, and it wasn't working. And that's where Michelangelo's brilliance really shone through. He could have easily had those hands touched, some sparks flying, something that kind of reinforced that Zeus Santa Claus god that he drew. Yet it's the two hands reaching for each other that pointed to the beauty of the human-divine relationship. We're always reaching, and God is always reaching too. And in those moments, we come to know God, and we come to know faith, and we come to sense hope. And while we may never touch the metaphorical hand of God, knowing that it is reaching out for us and pulling us into this eternal story from Moses to Jesus to us and beyond reminds us to have courage and hope that we are somehow pulling towards constant revelation. May it be so. Amen.